I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session Environmental Solutions, featuring Damon Gamow, Alice Gorman and Bruce Pascoe in conversation with Sarah Armstrong, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Good morning. My name's Sarah Armstrong. Uh, welcome to this discussion on environmental solutions. First, though, I'd like to acknowledge that we're gathered here today on the land of the traditional owners, the Arakwal people of the Bunjalung Nation, who cared for this land for tens and tens of thousands of years, which I think is particularly relevant when, as we will be in this panel, you consider the damage that has been wrought in the 230 years since colonisation. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Let me introduce you to the writers and panellists today. At the far end, Bruce Pascoe is a Tasmanian, Bunurong and Yuan man. He's the author of many books for adults and children, best known for his best-selling and award-winning book, Dark Emu, which shattered the commonly held view that Australian Aboriginal people were simply hunters and gatherers. He drew on first-hand accounts of explorers and colonists to show us that Aboriginal people did build permanent and substantial dwellings. They built dams and wells. They selected seeds for harvesting. They ploughed fields. They planted extensive croplands, irrigated their crops and stored large amounts of food in vessels. He's recently published Young Dark Emu, A Truer History for Younger Readers, and also Just Out is Salt, a very fine collection of his essays and stories from throughout his writing career. Bruce lives on the south coast of New South Wales where he farms native plants grown by Aboriginal people in pre-colonial times and he encourages us to look to the Aboriginal culture's millennia of agricultural wisdom to reduce our contribution to global warming and to cope with climate changes ahead. In the middle, oh, let's clap him. <laughs> In the middle is Dr Alice Gorman, also known as Dr Space Junk. She's an archaeologist and has also studied Indigenous culture and is a specialist in stone tool analysis. She's worked in Indigenous heritage management, providing advice for the mining industry, governments and native title groups. She's also an internationally recognised leader in the emerging field of space archaeology, which essentially is the study of all the junk that's hurtling through space, junk left behind by humans, Apparently, there are 23,000 bits of junk larger than 10 centimetres out there. She recently wrote a book, Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe, Archaeology and the Future, which has the light touch you might expect from the title, but it's also a poetic, entertaining journey into humankind's history in space. So please welcome Dr. Alice Gorman. Thank you. And finally, Damon Gamow. You may have come across Damon in his previous career as an actor or in the documentary he made a few years ago, That Sugar Film, in which he consumed 40 teaspoons of sugar a day. A lot of people saw that film, I think. 40 40 teaspoons of sugar a day and reported back to us, you know, on his weight gain, mood swings and fatty liver. Uh, But I was happy to read that as soon as you stopped 40 teaspoons of sugar a day, you went... Back. <laughs> you went back. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, Damon released his documentary, 2040, which, look, which looks at solutions we currently have, that we currently know about for climate change, and asks what the world would look like in 2040 if we were to implement them now. Described by one reviewer as an exercise in muscular hope, 
the doco comes with a book, The Household Guide for, Re for the Regeneration. Thanks. Welcome, Damon. Before, before we get to speaking about environmental solutions, I want to ask each of you about how you balance fear for the future with hope. Um, because, you know, every day it seems I read a new report or read of a new book mm. predicting a terribly grim future. You know, books with titles like The Uninhabitable, Uninhabitable Earth and reports predicting the extinction of the human species within 30 years. And when I read these, I feel myself bouncing between despair and denial and kind of desperate hope. Um, so I'm wondering if I could start with you, Bruce. Do you have something of that same balancing act? How do you manage the hope and the fear with regard to climate change? Well, I, I don't think I have a choice. Um, I've got four grandchildren. Um, they're pretty smart kids and they deserve a chance to do what my generation failed to do. Um, they deserve a chance in in the recovery, the regeneration. Um, it might fail, um, but at least they deserve that chance to save their world. And if, if push comes to shove, I'll be standing next to the axeman cutting down the last tree on Easter Island, trying to advise him against that course. Um, if, if I fail, I fail, but that's where I'll be, standing beside the axeman. Alice, I'm wondering if, as an archaeologist and someone who contemplates infinite space, you have a bit more of a long view, a peculiarly long view on humankind's history. Does that, is that any comfort when you contemplate what's ahead? Um, I guess so, because if you look at the evolution of, of sort of human society and culture, we're looking at uh, three million years of resilience. And I guess there is hope to be drawn for that. But then when I look at my other archaeological pursuit which is uh, in space and what humans are doing in space there's kind of there's a scenario called the Kessler syndrome which is that we will put so much space junk into earth orbit it will form a, a self-sustaining cascade of collisions which may develop to the point where it will be no longer safe to launch anything at all um, and some people say that's 20 years away some people say it's never going to happen um, and I sometimes think about if it does happen and we effectively have to abandon the rest of the solar system, which, you know, will put Apollo 11 into the shade. It would be like the whole... The, all We will be cut off from space. But maybe there's hope in that too. Maybe that means... You hear people like Elon Musk and co talking about the, the plan B of uh, fleeing environmental destruction on Earth by going into space. Well, it's, it's not feasible... Um, but maybe if that happened, there'd be no choice but to solve the problems we're creating here. So maybe that's a source of hope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not. There's no escape. <laughs> you can't get away. <laughs> no plan B. Um, and Damon, you've said you made your doco as a bit of an antidote to the doom and gloom. Do you have, do you have to work on staying hopeful these days? Uh, not anymore. I did three years ago, but I think when you, you spend three years solely focused on all the wonderful things that are happening around the world and the people that do care, and you spend less time in the mainstream media and on Twitter, which isn't the best representation of humanity, it's hard not to feel hopeful. And um, I do have moments where I, I do lose that, that sense. And I spoke to an environmental psychologist really early on in the research, and 
She actually said that it's important to acknowledge both, that we need more of our leaders to feel the depth of what is happening right now. I think a lot of our children are feeling that and they're sharing that and they're very emotional. Uh, we need more of our leaders to acknowledge that. Uh, and when you do that, it frees up the space for you to create that room for the focus on solutions and moving forward. And uh, in terms of a narrative, and this is why I made the film, is that she said that when we do constantly receive information with fear and dread and overwhelm, it does activate this part of our brain that shuts down the part where we mm. think creatively and problem solve. So there is a wide sense of paralysis going on because that's all we're hearing. So I think it's important that we balance that with a message of hope and optimism and you know, that any psychological textbook will tell you that. It's the work of Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, that we need the idea of a better future or hope as a great way to motivate us as humans. Mm -hmm. Thanks. So let's sort of talk about some of the solutions that we know about. Um, Bruce, in Dark Emu, um, which was published five years ago, you... Um, Describe the extensive croplands that um, pre-colonial Aboriginal people planted uh, and harvested and stored. Um, crops that, you know, you say had been domesticated over thousands of years um, so that they're adapted to this climate and logically would cope better with a drier climate and a, and a hotter climate. Uh, and you urged farmers to take up those native grasses and those native plants and start, um, you know, for, for both their environmental benefit and their commercial potential. Mm. Has that happened? What's the response been like? Um, some farmers have gone to perennials. Um, those marginal farms that have um, been flogged to death by sheep and um, over ploughing, um, some farmers have decided to go back to perennial grasses. The yield per acre is nowhere near that of wheat and the, the crops that they replace, but you need no chemicals at all. Uh, you don't put fertiliser on, you don't put extra water. I was saying to someone this morning on my farm, we sowed um, a tube stock of Murnong, the little tiny uh, tuber of Aboriginal people. Uh, we did that six, seven weeks ago. It hasn't rained since. We had rain the night before. Uh, it hasn't rained since and they, they're flourishing. Some of them are flowering, out of season actually, um, climate change. Um, but... The, these plants are made for Australia. They're perennial. And the stone tools that I talk about in Dark Emu, uh, some people call them ploughs, but um, I, I think they're more uh, horticultural tools. They were chippers and weeders. Aboriginal people were uh, getting rid of the plants they didn't want amongst their crops, mostly um, eucalypt seedlings and wattle seedlings, uh, to leave uh, the land open uh, for... They're food crops, the tubers. They're perennial. You don't need to disturb them other than to lift them, harvest them, and, um, and then put, press them back into the ground. These are truly perennial crops. And um, the ag agricultural tools our people used were not to deep till um, like uh, European farmers wanted to do and still do. I see the soil blowing away in South uh, coast of New South Wales today. Um, I, I don't know how you can stand by as a farmer and watch in some places 13 metres of topsoil disappear mm -hmm. and still call yourself a farmer. Mm -hmm. um, we have to change our, our methods. So the, these perennial um, grasses you're talking about, I mean, of course, a perennial crop will sequester more carbon because it, it's mm. ongoing rather than annual. So... Mm -hmm. um, 
are they growing these for their livestock or for the seed? And what kind, which, which sort of grasses specifically are you talking about? Uh, both. You can um, uh, stock. Um, we've proved this ourselves by um, opening up a gate, uh, knowing that the kangaroo grass is in the far corner of that paddock and um, horses will um, go through the gate and they'll gallop to the kangaroo grass. They favour it. It's so nutritious. Uh, that's what they want to eat. And so I've completely destocked my place because um, I don't want I don't want the seed eaten. Um, and our, you know kangaroos, strangely enough, eat kangaroo grass um, <laughs> because of its nutritional qualities. And we will learn that the the flour that you can make from kangaroo grass is not only highly nutritious and a perennial crop to save the earth from moisture destruction and, um, uh, you know, the depletion of, of value in the soil, they're also beautiful. If you cook with kangaroo grass flour or panicum flour for that matter or weeping grass flour, uh, you'll smell it from 300 metres away. It is beautiful um, and it is a food that's good for us. It has a probiotic um, element to it which is good for our gut. It's good for the soil um, and uh, it's good for the economy because it um, does, means that farmers don't have to rely on chemicals. They don't need to try and encourage the earth with chemicals. They can let the plants and the earth do it themselves because they do love to interact. They're used to interacting. Yeah. Um, Aboriginal people have been here for 120,000 years. Uh, I don't know how long it took to get to the stage of uh, agricultural economy that the explorers, so-called explorers, saw. But uh, I guess uh, it began very early because of the age of those tools. Mm. Some of the tools that you need for agriculture are 65,000 years old. Um, so presumably it began long before then. And this is the oldest agricultural earth. Is there anything you want to say to this, Alice? Because I know stone tools are something you've worked a lot on. Well, um, yeah, as, as an archaeologist, that was kind of my area of um, uh, specialisation, I guess you could say. And something that I've often thought um, in Australian archaeology is that a lot of the stories we tell about stone tools, which are the most um, durable and most common um, trace of uh, the Aboriginal occupation of this continent that we have like we often tell really boring stories about them and this is the kind of stuff where where this is not a boring story mm. and if you know what you're looking for I mean anybody here who's who's you know on the land is probably probably knows all of the um, places where um, Aboriginal people were living and working that are present on their country and um, I think, in fact, we were talking about this earlier, like there's a, a lot of old school farmers who, who carefully protect and preserve those places, even though they might, if you talk to them, they might be quite racist people, but somehow they still, despite that, they, they um, care for and create um, Aboriginal sites on their land. And I think connecting those two stories, connecting those the, the two halves of those stories to contemporary land use and contemporary land management is, is perhaps the most powerful story we can tell from these stone tools. Mm. Our museums are still fascinated by spears and boomerangs mm. and clubs um, because of, you know, museums are, 
um, have been the repository of things collected by men who are interested in the warlike nature of peoples. I'm just bored with spears, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the world should be bored with spears. I mean, um, Syria, um, you know, those children don't deserve to be bombed three or four times in their lifetime before they're five. Um, we need to get over this fascination with war and we need to look at the... In Aboriginal archaeology, it would be uh, wise of this country to look at the horticultural tools of our people and, you know, we, we see stone implements and wooden implements. We don't even know what they're for yet because so little work has been done on working out what they were for. Mm. But it's clearly they're not weapons. Um, we need to look at the women's digging stick and revere it as a horticultural tool. Um, and we need to get... The world needs to get over this fascination with war. We need to get on with looking after the earth. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> If I could come to you now, Damon, in making 2040, you came across a lot of people who told you they really wished agricultural solutions to climate change would get the kind of attention in the media that renewables get. Mm. Um, can you tell us some of the agricultural solutions you canvass in the film and the book? And I guess I'm particularly thinking of regenerative agriculture and mm. silver pasture and like how widespread are they in Australia and worldwide? Yeah, I mean, agriculture provides this wonderful opportunity for change because it is, at the moment, one of the most deleterious uh, industries to the climate. It commits about 25% of our emissions. And as Bruce alluded to, it's not just um, livestock practices, it's the constant ploughing and tilling of the soil. In fact, if you look over the last 10,000 years, the degradation of soil has contributed more to climate change than the burning of fossil fuels. So we've just put an extraordinary amount of carbon into the atmosphere by this constant mining of the carbon in the soil. So it prov provides this opportunity to fundamentally change how we, um, how we gather our food. And I guess what was so exciting to me was seeing how popular this growing movement of regenerative agriculture is around the world. There's a, I mean, as in a lot of ways, Australia is an epicentre for that. Some of the, our older uh, farmers here, Charles Massey, Cole Sice, are really world leaders in this field and are travelling around the world teaching more and more farmers. And again, what's fantastic about the opportunity is that those guys are now starting to bring in Aboriginal elders as well to discuss land management practices and, and what a wonderful opportunity to, to bring together traditionally quite conservative farmers with Indigenous leaders to actually start talking about how to repair the land again. But the statistics are, are quite phenomenal where obviously we know that we've been letting the carbon out of the atmosphere, but once you pull that carbon back into the atmosphere, not only do you get an incredible improvement of the quality of the food, which is again something that we should be focusing on even if there wasn't a climate problem, um, the stats show that, you know, you'd have to eat eight oranges today to get the same level of vitamin A that you got in a single orange 60 years ago because of the quality of the soil. So let's do that regardless. Um, but the water retention is really the big one. So for every 1% of carbon that you add to 30 centimetres of soil, you increase the water holding capacity of that soil by 166,000 litres per hectare on every rainfall. So the, the, the soil just becomes this giant irrigation system and this sponge and you only have to go and spend time on a farmer that's done this regenerative practice and see the difference in his landscape compared to the neighbour who's still using chemicals. And once that carbon's back in, this sort of flurry of biodiversity comes back again. And, and I've seen farmers where these, the kangaroo grasses that have been dormant have come alive again, the dung beetle returns, the insects, the spiders, so the birds come back. It kick-starts this chain reaction of life again. And when you're standing in there, you think, this is where I want to get my food from. 
This is the quality of life that we should, it's abundant, it's thriving, it's full of microbes that interact with our microbes and provide health. So it's just a no-brainer in terms of the solution. And uh, like I said, it's what gives me so much hope is how quickly it's spreading around the world at the moment. And even farmers that are still dubious on climate change and not sure if it actually exists, they're putting carbon back into the soil regardless because of all the other benefits I just mentioned. And what's the sort of brief description of regenerative agriculture like compared to conventional? They grow some native grasses. They What else do they do? Well, there's about 100 different types of practices. So it can be anything from cover cropping, so you never break the soil, you never plough until the soil again. Uh, Cole Size, for example, uses native grasses on his field and then plants in his crops on top of that, so you're never breaking the soil. It's constantly pulling more and more carbon down and enriching the soil. Uh, there's rotation livestock practices like silver pasture where you might rotate cattle with a, pr- a plant, a legume like a, called a lucana and that's extraordinary. You're able to sequester anywhere between 8 and 26 tonnes of carbon per hectare into that property just by moving your cattle in the right way um, and there's, just, there's a host of other areas. But it's basically reducing your chemical use and making sure that you keep the carbon in the soil. Damon, um, how does that relate to permaculture, which is mm. something I don't know much about, but mm. it seems there may be some kind of overlap. Yeah, huge similarities. Yeah. yeah, and it's a lot of people, you know, often say when they see the film, like, you know, we were doing this in the seventies, you know. <laughs> so this has been around for a long time. It's been even longer than that, going way back, hundreds of thousands of years, and it's just now, I guess, hitting the mainstream in a time of crisis and becoming more and more popular. Mm. And it's monocultures too that have, mm. have done the damage. Um, when I talk about murnong and the kangaroo grass and things like that, really what I'm talking about is a, a system with the grasses where there might have been three or four grasses grown together, That's right. all different heights, all different uh, seed maturation times. Uh, the same with the murnongs, the bulbine lilies, the, the orchids that grew with them. Though. And all in the western district of Victoria, they all grew through moss. <laughs> and within weeks of sheep arriving, the moss was dead. And that particular um, settler said that when he first arrived there, he couldn't walk out in the morning without getting his socks wet. (laughs) And um, within weeks of the sheep arriving, it was bald, dry ground. Mm. Uh, This is a Mm. terrible change for one person to witness in such a short time. And it's monocultures that we have to avoid. Yeah, and what's interesting there is that if you look at... um, So one-third of our croplands around the world now are used in monocrops to grow food for animals, not even humans. So we're using this incredible amount of land, really, where we should be feeding these animals food waste or crop residues or grasses or other things. We just don't need to damage that much land and use that much chemical on the land to grow this extraordinary amount of food for animals instead of us. And the animals damage the, the soil... As well. Again, if they're not used in the right yeah. way, but there are different ways emerging to, to make sure they look after the soil. And Australian um, um, animals uh, eating our pastures anyway, kangaroos, emus, mm-hmm. uh, wombats, and we're not eating them. Uh, we need to, um, unfortunately for Skippy, we need to eat the <laughs> kangaroo uh, because they're much gentler on the soil than the stock that we already have. And I mean, you, you mentioned that in Dark Emu, it's 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 come up before. It's been, I mean, I think Ross Garno recommended yeah. it in his uh, report for the Rudd government. So mm. why is this not mm. happening? It just seems so logical. Well, look what happened to Ross Garno when he did say that. Yeah. He was pilloried in the press. Mm. He was ridiculed, you know, by the anti-science movement. Um, we, you know, as a country, we need to get over that as well. But um, it, it's all there. We We just need to apply this knowledge and uh, stop being environmental fascists. <laughs> mm. Mm. 
Can I just uh, ask you, Damon, about tree planting? Because it seems to me there's been like a little rash of um, reports recently about, I mean, we've always known planting a tree mm. is good for sequestering carbon. But it seems like the understanding is that it's the, the potential is just uh, mind-boggling. Mm. Can you tell us what the latest thinking is on that? Well, I mean, I think one of the most extraordinary uh, feats of human ingenuity happened two days ago with the people of Ethiopia planted 350 million trees in one day which uh, it's just uh, extraordinary. Um, and again, we don't hear that in the mainstream press. You know, that's, that should be celebrated. I heard that on everywhere. Twitter, actually. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Uh, so, look, I, th I think, yeah, the trees can play an enormous role, but we, again, we need to be careful and not just rush out there and plant trees everywhere and think that's the answer. I think um, there's an opportunity to plant perennial food trees as well and, and really change the foods we're eating and move away from these monocrops and these grains that we're eating and are so obsessed by that when you in certain areas if you're planting macadamias or chestnuts or avocados these again are sequestering carbon more carbon than the the, the annuals and also preserving the soil and looking after that so there's wonderful examples of that through Tanzania and other countries now where they're planting just a, an incredible array of foods, whether it's macadamias or cacao or different types of beans and vegetables, all on really small parcels of land, again, which is what we should be doing. And you go and pick up their soil and it's like powdery snow and it's 10 foot deep, you know, and this is, again, what we need to be aiming towards. So um, trees is a general term. I think we just need to be careful and be more specific about the regions we're planting, the types of trees we're planting. But there's no doubt that, um, you know, that it can sequester an extraordinary amount of our emissions and it's already underway. And so low cost and so accessible. Yeah. So yeah. immediately available. Yeah. yeah. Alice, uh, you said to me when we spoke earlier that the scale of climatic changes we're talking about these days are actually old news for Aboriginal Australians and that what can we learn from their past experiences that you've looked into in your work? Well, yeah, I think this is, is really interesting because, you know, this continent has gone through some really major climatic changes in the past and we have in the archaeological record the, the evidence of how people responded to that like where they chose to live uh, so basically um, in the period called the last glacial maximum which is about 40 to 20,000 years ago Australia was incredibly dry incredibly cold um, vegetation was slow growing a lot of sort of woody chenopod like vegetation the coasts were kind of effectively abandoned um, as people retreated to fresh water sources. So we kind of have a whole patterned landscape which shows how people um, managed to survive uh, in a climatically really challenging period. And then we have later on, um, it gets warmer, there's more rain, the coasts are sort of recolonized, if you like. So I think there's really something to learn there in what you do in Australia, like what happens when climate changes in in this particular landscape um, and where people live and what they do and what resources are available to them. So I, so I think looking at that record can tell us something about how to respond here in this place, not not in some other country, not at some general level, about, and, and what we do right here and right now. So I think... Um, archaeology can give us some insights uh, into how Australia responds to those changes. I guess it's happening over a much shorter time period, though. Well, not necessarily. No? I mean, yes, so, that, so there was like, you know, a drought of 20,000 years. But when um, the sea started to rise again around sort of seven to 4,000-ish, 
And so this is what's really, the sea started to rise and it rose at a pace that radically altered the coast within someone's lifetime. So the amount of land available to them, the, as that fresh salt water balance changed, what could grow there, what, what resources you had. So this happened at that kind of speed. So I think there's something to be learnt from that as well. It sounds like water was, fresh water was the key. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, always the key. But lots of technologies, I think you talk about this, Bruce, as well. So, so there's all kinds of water technologies. Aboriginal people had like kangaroo skins that could be used to store water in uh, cache water, carry it over long distances so that there were ways of um, moving between permanent water sources and even temporary water sources using um, the wells, which then well, became um, European... Uh, explorers and agriculturalists and pastoralists used the same wells, used the same roots, um, and these were places that, that you know, could store water um, over long periods. They had to be maintained, though, um, and uh, I think a lot of them still are. I mean, people are still curating and caring for those wells, but a lot of uh, other ones have sort of been destroyed and filled in stuff. So I think, yeah, there are, there are technologies and ways of surviving that have been continuous that I think we would do well to look at now, mm -hmm. to revisit and look at how we can learn from that. Thanks. Damon, um, you say the most inspiring solution you came across was using seaweed, which is the fastest growing plant mm. on the planet, to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. Can you just tell us how that works and if anyone's <laughs> doing it on a large scale? Yeah, so the, the problem is that the no, around 90% of the excess heat from global warming is going into the oceans. So... Unfortunately, it's wiped out a lot of the kelp species around the world. So Tasmania, for example, has lost 95% of their kelp now. Um, oh. So there are scientists trying to find ways of bringing the cooler nutrient waters from below and upcycling them to the top in the warmer areas. And they're growing these platforms to, to kickstart the seaweeds again. And what's remarkable about seaweed is that it is the fastest growing organism on the planet. It grows half a metre a day and it can grow up to 50 metres long. So it's able to sequester a phenomenal amount of carbon out of the atmosphere. And the scientist I met in Massachusetts, um, his name is Dr. Brian Van Herzen, he started doing these platforms. And they've uh, done one in the Philippines, they've done one in Bali. We've been able to crowdfund the first one off Bruni Island in Tasmania to, to launch Australia's first one. But what's wonderful is once you, they harvest the seaweed about six times a year, and the seaweed now can be used for biofuels um, as a plastic fibre in clothes. It's a fertiliser to put on soils. And even uh, studies have shown if they feed it to cattle, it can lower their methane emissions by 80% as well. So wow. it's quite a miraculous uh, substance. Old seaweed needs to be Good renamed. Household level as well. That's possibly. right. <laughs> yes, and we can eat it. Eat more. Uh, but the beautiful thing there is if once you cut it off and store it below 1,000 metres in the water, the weight of the ocean stores it as carbon on the ocean floor. So the statistics, and Tim Flannery talks about this a lot as well, it's, there's 100, square, 100 million square kilometres of ocean between Australia and California. And somewhere between 2 and 3% of that ocean, if we grew these giant kelp forests, we could sequester mm. all of our current emissions at the moment. Wow. So there's, uh, there's a real push at the moment to upscale this. Why is this not already yeah. happening? Yeah, well, that's thankfully, since people have seen the film, we've been just inundated with impact investors and different kinds yeah. of groups and governments and whatnot. Uh, again, I think we need to be careful we don't create like a Google of seaweed, some kind of um, <laughs> corporate hierarchy that's going to control all the seaweed in the world. So... <laughs> there's a there's an opportunity here to decentralise our seaweed model and um, make sure everyone benefits around the world. Yeah. 
Great. And are you going to sort of provide sort of updates on what's happening like on your website and so on? Yes. Because that's the kind of thing people would really love to yeah, know. Yeah, we, we do that. And so the, the one in Tasmania, where we're just about to build it. So that's tip. Mm. We've just had an extraordinary response from the public. And the Intrepid Foundation, who we did that with, Match Fund Every Dollar, they're already now, we're about to launch the film in the UK and they're going to launch one off the coast of the UK as well so they can have their first one. And we're just trying to roll momentum and get this going as fast as we can. Fantastic. Um, <clears throat> You, uh, you spoke earlier, Alice, about, you know, maybe we won't be able to launch anything into space mm. uh, at a certain point with the Kessler effect, I think you said it was. Um, but any discussion of, you know, climate change solutions and the investment necessary brings into question, you know, does it make sense to spend so much money on space exploration, whether it's government or privately, when we need serious investment in things like seaweed farms, like... Can I? Space or seaweed. Space, <laughs> space or yeah. earth at some yeah. level. <laughs> now, it's something that comes up a lot. People sort of say, you know, it costs a lot of money to put something into space. Um, so why are we doing this when there are more urgent problems on Earth? And I suppose the first thing is, like, if these satellites or spacecraft weren't launched, that money actually doesn't go straight into education and health and, and, and whatever. So it's not a sort of a one-to-one payoff. But... Um, a lot of the stuff we've got in Earth orbit is directly responsible for monitoring and providing us with data about the level of uh, change, um, providing us with the information about the distribution of carbon, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and how that's changing. And there's a, a really sort of interesting thing. So I think um, so in the in the 1960s there was a, a rapid acceleration of satellites launched into Earth orbit, which were providing Earth observation data, uh, data about the actual space environment itself, coupled with the growth of computing, which could actually process the huge amount of data that was coming in. And as a result of this, and as a result of those famous images, I'm sure everybody knows, the blue marble from the Apollo 1972 mission that showed the whole Earth and the 1968 Earthrise image, which gave people a sense of the Earth as an entire system. So you put all these factors together and you actually create the circumstances whereby we can recognise this as a global problem and attempt to seek global solutions. So I see this, I see, I see space exploration at this point, even though I'm not saying it's without issues and I'm also uncomfortable with the sort of cults that have built up around private corporations and what they're doing in space. But, but I think we've got... Uh, we're creating a problem, but we're also getting solutions from this stuff. And in terms of exploring the deeper solar system, I think this is critical for situating the Earth and what is happening right now within that broader context, without which we can't even begin to understand whether the changes we're looking at are typical or atypical. Like, we know something bad happened to Venus, which was probably much more like... Earth and its climate much earlier in its evolution. So we need to know this stuff. We, we need to get a sense of how the Earth sits within that 4.3 billion year history of the solar system, how it fits with the exoplanets that we're finding. Uh, so I think this data is actually quite critical to understanding where we are right now and what we need to do about it. Thanks. Bruce, when I was reading your book, when I was reading Dark Emu, as, as a 
permaculturalist myself, I kept thinking, I wonder what they grew here as crops. I wonder what the local people grew here. And I wonder if I could grow some of them. And I'm wondering, you know, are, are seeds available? Would kangaroo grass grow here? Are seeds available for it? Can we buy yams if we want to grow them ourselves? Do you, do you know that? You, you can um, buy some of these um, uh, seeds and you can buy tube stock from uh, various nurseries, but uh, the seeds for them exist in the wild. Mm -hmm. You know, railway lines, um, um, cemeteries, a uh, great place mm -hmm. for growth. Um, <laughs> and they, um, <laughs> you know, we should be using those things um, and growing them in our own gardens. Uh, the, all, all the material is there for us. We just have to decide to do it, uh, like a lot of things. But um, we do have to talk about population um, in, a, in a forum like this. Um, we have to um, try and influence our religions and our economies. Um, our religions talk about going forth and multiplying and uh, you shall have dominion over the earth. Um, we need to talk about all the two major religions in the world and how uh, devastating they are for the globe uh, environmentally. We have to talk about the economies, um, both communism and capitalism, and how devastating they are for the globe. Don't just um, you know, berate capitalism um, because we're so close to the big corporations like Crown Casino and uh, things like mm. that. Um, look at communism. And, and how communism drained the Aral Sea so that it could grow, grow cotton. Mm. Communism isn't the answer. We have, to, um, we have to reduce our population. We have to reduce the load on the earth. This is not an intelligent path to follow. It is, you know, Easter Island is a great example of it. Um, you increase your population, you incre increase the level of aggression, you will destroy yourselves. We have to reduce population, reduce aggression. Can I say, we, um, in, in researching the film, we came across a really interesting solution to um, the population issue, and it comes down to the empowerment of girls and women. And so the statistics show that if, um, if a girl doesn't complete her education, this is not just in developing countries, this is in wealthier nations as well, that she's likely to have five or more children if she doesn't complete the education. But if she is able to complete that education and have access to reproductive health services and job opportunities, she then chooses when and how many children she has. And that number comes down to two. So the UN says that that difference is 1.1 billion people by 2050, wow. which has a profound impact on our resources and climate change as well. So it can be a divisive discussion, but I just think what a beautiful way to come to it and say, let's empower these girls anyway. Let's just do that. That's a great thing to do. And then we get this bonus. Yeah. A critical issue you've you've raised, Damon, as well. I was recently at a, a United Nations meeting about getting more women involved in space, and the whole sort of STEM thing as well. And um, one of the factors that was identified was that young girls um, want to change the world. They want to make the world a better place. And this this ambition is often derided and ridiculed as you know some association with beauty pageants or something. And yet it's so powerful and so important. And being told that to, to, if they want to go into aerospace industry, that these two are not compatible is one factor that sort of drives them mm. out of this sector. So so this, like this to me, this is a, a sort of a really eye-opening 
thing. And it's another study has shown, as we were saying earlier, that um, being concerned for the environment or being an environmental activist is associated with femininity. So therefore, our classic sort of male politicians not wanting to appear weak um, are actively rejecting these views. And we've seen with um, uh, Greta Thunberg just how powerful this... So that the, everything you've just said as well, but, but even at the level of saying to these young girls whose who's drive to, to make the world a better place is dismissed, mm. allowing that to be articulated and supporting that could be a catalyst for, for an incredible amount of change as well, I believe. Mm. So how do we start a global conversation about that questioning notions of progress and those issues you raise and what do we have to learn from... Our First Nations people, Bruce, you talk about this in Dark Emu. Yeah, I think um, uh, what Alice said uh, about our politicians wanting to appear strong, um, our politicians are no different to um, Boris Johnson and uh, Donald Trump. You know, this idea that um, strength is all mm. and that um, uh, any show of uh, sensitivity is, uh, is a weakness, uh, we can... That's just a fashion at the moment. It's a fashion that's been going on for a couple of thousand years. Um, that it, uh, you know, that a pharaoh wants to erect um, a great monument to himself um, and his dog. Um, <laughs> but and then, in order to do that, enslaves um, a country which he decides is his enemy, and that those people are enslaved to build that monument to that person and their children are enslaved to finish it mm. and their children are enslaved to protect it. Um, this is a ridiculous model uh, for human excellence and we should just reject this system of having strong men. Um, <laughs> and and, and that will change the fashion. Um, the, the fashion will then be that uh, um, it'll be a struggle to the bottom, a, a struggle to, the, to be sensitive. Um, and, you know, we won't notice because no one will care. Um, it, as long as we're really caring for Mother Earth, you know, th this is the heart of Aboriginal culture is mm. that it's Mother Earth uh, that is the centre to everything. Everything... Um, is we are beholden to her, not the other way around. Mm. She is there and we are her slaves. Mm. And if you go through Yuan culture, for instance, and go through the, you know, Gulliga Mountain, um, southern New South Wales, you'll see there that it is all about women. It is very hard for some of our young men to suddenly realise that the heart of their culture is all about women and childbirth. And, you know... Men have been programmed only recently um, to be so aggressive that um, a lot of our young boys who have got themselves into trouble because of that aggression uh, go up to Gulliga Mountain and they're asked to touch the belly of a pregnant woman. It happens to be, you know, a worn granite um, plinth, but um, as far as the law is concerned, it's a pregnant woman and young boys are asked to touch it and that'll be to follow a rule like that rather than one where it is, you know, popular to be stupid 
um, is a, a much better uh, way for the world to go. I actually think that, um, yeah, Bruce has nailed it there, and I think that any of these discussions we're having around solutions won't really matter unless we change the metaphor that's underlying our interaction with the planet and who we are. And if you look at, whether it's indigenous cultures and looking at you know, the, the language they used around being custodians of the land, um, Mother Earth or Father Sky, which were the Native American Indians, even the Chinese referred to themselves as reverent guests of the land. And um, there's a spectacular story about an ad Admiral Jang in, in the 15th century who travelled the world, which we don't hear about, for 33 years with 27,000 men and 300 ships. And he didn't go around to conquer the lands. He came to exchange goods and learn about a different culture, bring back things, exchange these things. All we hear about is Columbus, which had a very different narrative. And when you get to that scientific revolution and you get Francis Bacon and Descartes coming in, suddenly the language around the planet changes. And it's suddenly uh, we must hound her in her wanderings. We must enter and penetrate her every hole. Like it's such a grip. That's Francis Bacon saying that. So suddenly we shift the way we look at the, the planet as something we extract from, something separate to us. And I think unless we correct that underlying metaphor, it's not really going to matter. We've, we've got to look at the science now, the biology that's coming through that says how interconnected everything is, how trees talk to each other and provide nutrients for a struggling tree because they know they are better as a whole. The forest will work better if they're all strong. So if we don't listen to that, I don't think we're going to get through this. And I think, again, it speaks to the beautiful Indigenous culture that's waiting for us to accept it, learn from it and integrate better than we ever have before. Mm. And, mm. I, I think uh, any discussion on solutions must uh, include a discussion of renewables and where, where it's at. And, you know, Elon Musk may be sending hundreds of satellites out. He's also um, spending a lot of money on, on renewables. So can you just um, tell us about um, some of what you discovered, Damon, in particular, could you talk to us about SolShare, the microenergy grids in Bangladesh, and whether they would work here? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like uh, I think most experts would say that the, the renewables transition is firmly underway and is almost, there's an inevitability about it, that, that it's going to happen. And I even spoke at a conference recently. It was um, a lot of sort of CEOs of oil companies, overseas oil companies were there, and they've, they've all put a carbon tax on themselves already. They've done it 10 years ago because they know the transition's coming. They've put some money aside to start investing in these new projects, um, which just shows how lame the governments are around the world, even though they're doing it to themselves. But I, I think if you see what's happening now with the, the cost of battery storage, how quickly that's um, plummeting, the sort of the interesting research around hydrogen and what's happening there, I, I feel quite strongly that Australia is going to get there faster than anyone thinks. I think most people are saying that now. Um, but I think the more important discussion, again, comes back to how we distribute our energy so that it doesn't come from this top-down hierarchical structure that we have right now. We have an opportunity to decentralise that energy. And the solution I found in Bangladesh was... Each individual house in this village actually has their own solar panels and a battery and they have this little special box that allows them to buy and sell energy from each other and even donate energy to someone if you're going away. So it becomes this collective pool of energy. And that technology is illegal in most parts of the world right now because it doesn't suit that top-down hierarchical model. But it is changing. It will change in Australia in the next couple of years. And most people I've spoken to said... Uh, you'll be able to go to Ikea. You can already go to Ikea now and get a battery and solar panel combination, but you'll be able to get this little box as well, which will allow you to start sharing your energy with your neighbour. And the Australian Energy Commission said that as of next year, July next year, 
the price of buying one kilowatt of energy from the grid will be exactly the same as a kilowatt of energy from your home setup. So they call it socket parity, which means going off the grid is as cheap as buying it from the grid. So that's when the revolution starts to happen. So mm. I feel like there's a beautiful thing going on there. We've, we've got that. Let's now start shifting on to sequestering and talk about regenerative agriculture and these other factors because they need to be given urgent attention. Mm. And I think that has started, mm. uh, that whole uh, movement started in Australia. Um, and an example of it is in my own town where the, the richest man in the town um, and he became rich by uh, making glasses uh, to hold beer uh, um, th that held eight ounces but set on the glass ten ounces. Um, and, and that business model should be deplored. I mean, we should be working really hard in private schools where most of our CEOs come from mm. and say, that's not funny. You know, it's not amusing to do that. It's not a good business model. It's corruption. You know, we, we have to stop knighting people who do things like that. Mm. But that man has solar panels on his roof. Mm. So he's actually gone against the principles of his own friends right. and his own government because he virtually, you know, makes governments. Um, and Australia has voted with their roofs mm. um, <laughs> in defiance um, of the government. We can do this. We can reject the government's view and adopt another model mm. and we can do it ourselves even though uh, at the moment um, it's not completely economically viable to swap from the grid to off the grid but people are doing it right. because Australia has a lot of sun mm. um, and we of all nations on earth should be using it <laughs> and uh, it is sustainable um, yeah. while the sun's there of course. <laughs> um, this localisation you speak about, Damon, that, you know, the neighbourhood grids um, bringing things back mm. to a, a local level, it seems to me, everyone seems to be saying, you know, that it's really central that for resilience, particularly, you know, as things mm. change. And I think it was in your book, uh, someone said, you know, when things change, stay put and get to know your neighbours. Mm. Or was that in your book, I think? It was Not a, mine, it's it was, a great line. It's yeah. a great line. <laughs> I'll use it from now on. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, can you just speak a bit more about that and what, what's mm. happening on that level and how important it is? Yeah, I mean, I think we've, we sort of did this experiment with centralising government through the 20th century and that kind of didn't go as well as we'd hoped and then we switched everything to centralising corporations and that power and we're seeing how that's going now. So... I feel that um, when we really break down the angst that's going around the world and this sort of return to nationalism and this return to strong men, strong leaders, it's because people are feeling completely disempowered, that their communities no longer make decisions. They're being made by large corporations that are roaming around the world making these decisions about their local community and that's infuriating people. So I kind of understand to a degree why people are voting for Trump because it just... He's coming in saying, I'll protect you, I'm the strong man, let's militarise, let's bring back the nation and make it great again. Because people are like, yeah, please, do something, because we feel completely helpless. So, again, I've tried to reframe climate change as this opportunity. It's, it's a gift, if we look at it that way, to fundamentally change the way we interact with each other, our systems, our corporate structures. We're not going to get through this if we don't do that. And I think we've got an opportunity to, to put a lot more power at a local level where people care about their community, they're able to make decisions based on their knowledge of that community and what's good for the land and the foods they grow. So the more that we can emphasise shifting money and capital and resources at that local level, 
I think we're going to see, like nature works, little nodes and cells start to spread out and multiply, and that's how we create a stronger whole. Yeah. I just, uh, I wonder, um, I wonder about a certain complacence, though, among even those of us who. Um, you know, are concerned about climate change and are doing things at home, you know, recycling rubbish, putting solar panels on our roof. Mm. Um, yet we're still flying vast distances. We're still doing other things that are really damaging. I mean, mm. I, I read that every return flight from London to New York, not that that's particularly relevant to us, but uh, costs mm -hmm. the Arctic three square metres of ice. So, mm. you know, are we fooling ourselves uh, still jumping on, you know, flights? I will I say in the film is that... It, what we can't do is we're all hypocrites. Like this system, you cannot do the right thing. And and again, this um, environmental psychologist told me that if we start, if we do feel ourselves as hypocrites and we berate ourselves constantly, that's also a paralysis. We can also freeze from taking action because it's like, well, it's all too hard. And like our film used 2,000 tonnes of carbon to make that film. So we were able to offset it and we were lucky enough to do that. But that's a small Australian documentary. Imagine what a Marvel film costs or a, a Netflix series. So even you watching television, you're complicit in the problem. You know, so there's, there's nothing you can do right at the moment. So the more we can just take that off and go, okay, none of us are pure. We're all actually spectacularly failing to some degree. It'll help us move through that and actually take the actions we need to take. And yes, it's important to do whatever you can. And I don't think it helps when we're prescriptive about it. And we say, well, we all need to eat less meat and you need to stop flying because some of us it's not, po it's not possible for that. So, again, we've sort of set up a platform and work with about 50 different organisations to give people their own personalised climate plan based on what they resonate with, what they're passionate about. It might be educating girls. It might be seaweed. It might be decentralised energy. You're more likely to get engaged and stay engaged if you deeply connect with the topic that you're trying to make a difference on. So I think we've got to get away from just this prescriptive, these are the things you have to do, because not everyone's going to resonate with those. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So, as, as we've been saying, on one hand, the private sector seems to be, um, you know, way ahead of government in some, in some respects. And then we've got the sort of grassroots activisms, and I'm particularly thinking of the, um, like, Greta Thunberg mm. and the school strike Fridays that she started. <laughs> um, and and uh, do you, would any of you like just to speak to um, what we're seeing coming through with the young people <laughs> and activism and what hope that might offer you? I, I love it. I'll just go quickly. I, I, I mean, we interviewed 110 kids from around the world um, and asking them about They were the little kids, and, weren't they? Like, yeah, and, and that's, that's for me where the hope lies in the future and they're so eloquent on this topic. At all the Q&As we've done, they've asked far better questions than any adult, I've got to be honest. Um, they're so... They understand what's going on and they feel this deep frustration at why our leaders aren't doing anything about it. And I, I actually think we'll look back at this moment in the next 20 or 30 years as quite a pivotal moment in our history and what young Greta Thunberg's doing. And you go back to um, the abolitionists, you know, 60 years before slavery ended, everyone was telling them to get off the streets, that the idea was utopian, that the economy would never survive without slaves. In fact, if we give up our slaves, another country will have an economic advantage because they'll have the slaves. And look what happened. We look at the suffragettes. You have Grover Cleveland, who was the US president in 1904, saying, no sensible woman wants to vote. You know, like, <laughs> and, and look what happened. Uh, interracial marriage is the same in America, state by state. They implemented it and it reached a tipping point. Mm. And 
it's not going to be easy, but I think we should be incredibly encouraged by what these kids are doing, what Extinction Rebellion's doing. Uh, the UK government have declared a climate emergency and attested it to the climate kids. We've got 45 councils in Australia now that have declared a climate emergency. There's a long way to go, but I think we should be encouraged by what is happening and that we might be uh, in the middle of one of the most exciting revolutions in our, in our history. I'll, I'll, come, I'll come to you two in a moment if you want to speak to that. But first, Damon, I mean, you mentioned um, Project Drawdown's 15 top solutions. I notice in that it's like activism is not actually one of the yeah. solutions. Yeah, and neither is actually what they did is um, need this world peace because they actually did a stat that if every army stood down around the world, that would be the number one solution to global warming. All the resources and the uses and the fossil fuels required to have these armies in play, if they disappeared... No problems. Do either of you? I think um, we could um, do well to listen to eight-year-old children. Um, eight or nine-year-old kids are, are totally fair. They're still at that age where they see things in... Um, we, we call it black and white terms, but that demeans it. Um, you ask... A, I talk to a lot of kids and you say there's a there's 100 sandwiches and 100 apples and... <laughs> Um, a hundred people, how do you divide them? The eight-year-old goes, um, yeah, everyone gets a sandwich and an apple. Um, and the 17-year-old says, who grew the apples? Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's that change in mentality from total fairness. You say to the eight-year-old and nine-year-old, and I've done it, there's a, six, there's a sick child on Nauru. His father was a terrorist. Um, what do you do? And the eight-year-old says, well, you've got to bring the child to Australia. You've got to make the child well. And we need that kind of mentality in our world. We need to honour it. Um, I think that um, we should have... Um, we should try an experiment in this country in getting an eight-year-old girl as uh, Prime Minister. <laughs> and, and we all sit on the floor so we're at her eye level. <laughs> Um, if I think of what I see the potential for young people um, in the sector I work in, the, the space sector, so uh, it's pretty widely known that we do have this problem with space junk in Earth orbit. It could get out of hand. Uh, it needs to be solved. But the people responsible for creating the problem at the moment are not doing that. There's no international agreement. There's, there's no technologies that we can use uh, to significantly reduce that problem. But when I talk to school kids... They're all concerned about this and they're all impatient with the lack of action. So I see these little eight-year-olds coming up as the ones who hopefully will fix this problem, who will take action, who will say it's not good enough that we're not doing anything and ensure that we have a sustainable future in space as well as on Earth. Thank you. So we started this discussion uh, talking about hope, um, we've touched on some despair, we've touched on resilience. Um, I, I read an article by an author and spiritual teacher, Catherine Ingram, recently, and in it she says, what we need more of than anything as we face climate change is courage, courage to live with fear and allow vulnerability. I just wonder if that resonates with any of you. Mm. I think we need love yeah. as well. Mm. Another unfashionable term. Yeah. Um, we do. We need uh, more more love in the world, and you know, not necessarily wearing flowers in our hair, but you're welcome to. <laughs> um, 
but um, you know that that reaching out to people, um, that being, you know, we 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 demean such a a fundamental principle as love at our peril. Mm. Um, we need to be um, gentle with each other, and we need to make sure that our institutions reflect that. Mm. And we we're actually in charge. Um, of our governments. We elect them. Um, we can make them do our bidding uh, by being organised. And we, we cannot become despairing because despairing results in inaction. Mm -hmm. Everyone has said it today mm -hmm. that uh, we, we need to, even though we have fear in our hearts, we have to be courageous mm -hmm. um, and we have to keep working. Um, keep working and, you know, if the worst happens... Um, at least we've had a go on behalf of our, our children and our grandchildren. Mm. But look, I'm really confident um, because of those eight-year-old brains, if we give them free reign, um, we will improve the world. Mm. And uh, I'm, I have confidence that we won't, uh, we won't allow it to continue. Uh, like Damon said, there's evidence that uh, people are striving for the solutions and um, I, I remember seeing the bull kelp in Bass Strait and I've, I've seen the difference now um, but I, I'm looking forward um, to seeing it grow again. Hmm. <laughs> Alice, hmm. do, you, do you want to speak to that at all, the notions of courage or love? There's a, a poem that was the first poem sent into space in 1969 and um, the the last stanza was inscribed on the instrument panel of the satellite. And I'm trying to think, think if I can remember it. It's, it's um, the idea that the gods have, have... Humans have been at the mercy of the gods for all of this time and now it's humans are going into space. It's their turn to decide how they're going to deal with this. <laughs> and, and the poem says, and, you know, now we come to take our place... Um, and aim to repay the goods you gave and warm with human love the chill of space. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the message I want to go out on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I think um, that in a time that there is a nihilistic narrative emerging at the moment and, and hope has become the radical position. And that's sort of sad, but it does require people to be courageous and seek out that hope because uh, that's the thing that motivates us and that's what we need to keep feeding our children. Um, my favourite quote is by the uh, Arctic explorer Robert Swan and he said that um, the greatest threat to the planet is the belief that someone else will save it. Mm. And uh, mm. take that and do with it what you will. Yeah. Thank you. These, uh, these three writers will be signing books in the book tent now, so please come over if you'd like uh, your book to be signed. So Damon Gamow's book is 2040, A Handbook to the Regeneration, which goes with his film. Alice Gorman's is Dr Space Junk versus the Universe, Archaeology and the Future. And Bruce Pascoe has not long released Younger Dark Emu, A Truer History, as well as his just-released collection of short stories and essays, Salt. Please join me again in thanking our three panellists, Bruce Pascoe, Alice Gorman and Damon Gammon. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. 
You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.